Well, I ask you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 is where we'll be today. But we will again read those opening verses of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Let us hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Amen. Trust the Lord to bless this word to our hearts. Let us pray briefly one last time asking for His help. My Father, we do thank Thee for such precious words of Holy Scripture. We thank Thee for what You have revealed to us concerning us and concerning Thee. And Lord, we ask that You will help us now as we seek to understand the Word of God, as we seek to accurately handle it. Lord, undertake for me, fill me with the Holy Spirit, and bless the preaching of the Word of God. To all of our souls we pray, and may all glory and all praise redound to Thee. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, we've come to verse 6 of this wonderful epistle. Uh, really, there's a, a paragraph that flows from verse 3 to verse 6, and now we're coming to the end of that paragraph. And there's much to consider in that paragraph, which is why we've uh, taken the approach uh, that we have to just go verse by verse through it, uh, much to consider and certainly more to be said, uh, of course, about those verses, but trust the Lord has blessed our studies thus far, and as we come to this verse 6 today, will bless us. A few weeks ago, we read the question from the Shorter Catechism, uh, the first question, which is, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, I'd like to ask you a question today as we think about that. What is, the, what is God's chief end? What is God's chief end? What is His goal in all of His works? What is, what is He doing ultimately in all that He does? God's chief end is His own glory. 
God's chief end is His own glory. That is the purpose of all of His works. To bring glory to Him. There may be side aspects of everything that He does, but ultimately, all that God does is for His glory. That is God's chief end. His own glory. And this is important as we come to verse 6. For verse 6 says, To the praise of the glory of His grace. To the praise of the glory of His grace. This verse in some ways parallels, though it is distinct, verse 12 of chapter 1, where it says that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. And it's significant to see Verse 6, obviously, uh, connected to verse 4 and 5. And verse 4, we, we considered uh, the doctrine of election there, that according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that that's really the fountainhead of all these blessings that are announced in verse 3. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And then He immediately launches into election. That's where it all begins at least in relation to us, God's choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 5, we have that glorious doctrine of adoption presented to us. That that is the goal of election, as it were, that He elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world, predestinating us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. And so really it's helpful to see both of those verses as bookends, as it were, to the gospel. That as He chose us in the beginning, we see the gospel there. That's the beginning of God going to bless His people with the gospel. And then it's unto adoption. And you, if you remember last week, we said adoption is something we do enjoy in this life, but it is something that we are also looking forward to. It is yet to come, as it were, the full display of our adoption into the family of God where we'll be glorified and made His sons for eternity in the sense of our glorification. And so they're bookends, as it were, from start to finish. And then Paul comes to verse 6 under inspiration of the Spirit. And he says that both of these, the choosing us in Him, the predestinating us unto adoption, both of these are to the praise of the glory of His Grace, wherein or in accordance with this, he hath made us accepted in the beloved, the beloved. And so what this verse does is it highlights to us in a very special way God's glory in the gospel. And it really answers the why of the gospel. Why did God do what he did? Why did He choose to save anyone? For His own glory. And so it is crucial as we come to this verse to understand it. For it is crucial to our understanding of the gospel. And so as we come to this text, I want us to consider it under this title, The Governing Purpose of the Gospel. The Governing Purpose of the Gospel. And the first thing I want you to see is this purpose announced. This purpose announced. Paul says in verse 6, To the praise of the glory of His grace, 
It's a revelation, an announcement. He's declaring that this is the purpose for these other things. And so he announces it in verse 6. And so we want to see here first that the glory of God is the purpose of the gospel. The glory of God is the purpose of the gospel. To the praise of the glory of His grace. To the praise of the glory. And it's important to note here that this is not His essential glory. By essential glory, I mean uh, who He is. God is glorious. Stephen says at the beginning of his sermon in Acts chapter 7, he calls God the God of glory. And so he is always glorious. He's always glorious. It's an attribute of God. He is that. He is glorious and is immutably glorious, unchangingly glorious. So nothing that a creature or anything else can do will ever affect the glory of God. He is glorious. So it's not his essential glory. But this is his ascribed glory. And there's an important distinction there. It's his ascribed glory. It's the glory which men ascribe to him. It's the honor that he is worthy of in light of what he has done in creation, in redemption. His ascribed glory. The word glory, you see this various places in Scripture and it's helpful to understand what exactly it refers to. And there are a couple ways uh, that we can express it. But basically, at least one way, is that glory is the manifested excellence of divinity. It's the manifested excellence of divinity. The manifested excellence of God. Or, as one man also said, the perfections of God on display. The perfections of God on display. When you read glory in Scripture, it often has that in view. Manifested Glory. You see this in Isaiah 6 3, where we read, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see the same in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And you see this in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was revealing his divine nature in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, when he says, when he does the miracle, he changes the water into wine. And it says there that when he did this, he manifested forth his glory. And so it is a manifestation of glory. And it's important to note that because it is manifested for men to behold it. And so it is his ascribed glory. And this glory, this glory was the defining factor of God's decree. We've considered God's decree several times in these studies. On from verse uh, 4, really you see you have to deal with the fact that before the foundation of the world, God made a decision. He predetermined, as you see in verse 5, that word predestinated. He chose us in Him. He decreed what was going to take place regarding the gospel and regarding everything, really, when we consider the whole of God's decree. But His glory... This is why it's significant. When we think about God's decree, His glory was the defining factor. It's interesting to think about this because we cannot enter into the mind of God, really. It's not as if God has to put in effort to decide something. 
It's hard for us to understand that, to comprehend that. That there's no effort exerted by God. Nothing is hard for Him. And so it's not as if God sits down, as it were, and and thinks, well, how should I do this? How should I decree everything to fall out in history and, and for my glory? He doesn't have to do that. But at the same time, it's helpful to see from from the human perspective and what God has revealed, that His glory was the defining factor. That as He decreed all things before the foundation of the world according to His sovereign purpose and His good will and His pleasure, it was all defined according to His glory. What would bring Him the most glory? And so... It was the defining factor of God's decree. When He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, when He predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to the good pleasure, according to the good pleasure of His will, all of that, all of it, was according to what would bring Him the most glory. And so, this glory is the central focus of the gospel. This is crucial for us to understand, especially in a day like today where there's so often a man-centered gospel presented to people. And there's so often man in the center of the gospel. Man is a recipient of the grace of God in the gospel. It is God's glory that is central to this message. And this should be clear just by way of application as we see that this is the reality that this should be clear when we share the gospel. That God should always be at the center of any presentation of the gospel. What I mean is, uh, I was speaking with someone a few weeks ago about this. Uh, and not that this is necessarily wrong, uh, but it is something that in recent months uh, I've had my thinking refined about in terms of when we share the gospel, we often begin with man. We begin with man as a sinner or, or man in, in some way. Or sometimes we jump to Christ and we, we just immediately tell people about what Christ has done. And it's not necessarily wrong to do that, but what I'm getting at is that when we share the gospel, it is very helpful in terms of the creature's understanding of the gospel to begin with God. To realize that the gospel begins with God. With who He is. And then transitioning to man and how man's fallen short of the glory of God. And then going to Christ that, and how God has provided Christ as the means of dealing with man's falling short of His glory. Do you see the, the difference there? Beginning with God. And the reason I say that is because that is one way that we keep God at the center of the gospel and His glory. Because it brings all the glory to God when we keep that focus. But also here, the glory of God is the purpose of the gospel as we see the announcement of it. But the glory of God's grace is preeminent in the gospel. You see that in this announcement. The glory of God's grace is preeminent or primary. It's the focal point in the gospel. Not only His glory, but the glory of His grace. And it's important to understand that through the praise of the glory of His grace. I want to 
see here a definition of this phrase. It's very important to understand what exactly is he getting at. And I think Charles Hodge does a great job at defining this phrase for us. He writes in his commentary, quote, The glory of His grace is the divine excellence of that attribute manifested as an object of admiration. The glory of His grace is the divine excellence of that attribute manifested as an object of admiration to the praise or to the adoration, the beholding of the glory of His grace. And so we see there that it is something that you and I are to behold. That any time we, we meditate on the gospel, any time we, we remember what God has done, it is to behold the grace of God. It is to praise Him. But we might ask the question, why this attribute? Is it, have you ever asked that question, why does God determine it to be to the praise of the glory of His grace? I mean, why doesn't it say to the praise of the glory of His power? Or to the praise of the glory of His holiness? It says to the praise of the glory of His grace, and that's significant. So I want to consider some reasons, therefore, for this phrase. Not only the definition, but the reasons for this phrase. And the first is because it, it pleased God to design it that way. It's very simple to say that, but it's necessary. That's really the first reason, and we could just stop there. Because it pleased God to design it that way. Again, to quote Charles Hodge, he writes, The design of redemption, therefore, is to exhibit the grace of God in such a manner as to fill all hearts with wonder and all lips with praise. That that was the design of it. But it still leaves the question. We, we see, we can understand, we can submit to the fact, well, God was pleased to do this. It pleased Him to exalt this attribute in the gospel not that the other attributes are absent from the gospel, you understand. His power is seen. His holiness is seen. Indeed, you could say all the attributes of God are seen in the gospel. But he, he brings a primary focus to this one. And it begs the question again, why? Well, not only because it pleased Him, but because it keeps sinners from in any way contributing to their salvation. It keeps sinners from in any way contributing to their salvation. That's why it's grace. What is grace? We talked about this some at the beginning of these studies that grace has various shades of meaning in the scriptures, but here it is most certainly the undeserved favor of God. That is how you should think about this word grace in verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, the undeserved favor of God. And by making the gospel to the praise of the glory of His grace, He keeps man completely out of it in terms of contribution. It makes it so that God is not only the chief object of praise, but the only object of praise in the gospel. That there is not due to man any praise whatsoever in the gospel. Why am I belaboring this point? 
Well, because this is, this is crucial to understand when we think about the gospel. We live in a day where so many place man, as I've said, at the center of the gospel. It's about what man needs to do in light of what God has done. And I know what people are getting at. There is a need for repentance. There is a need for faith. But those things are gifts from God. And so if someone would object and say, well, what about repentance? Isn't that man's part? Well, Acts eleven eighteen makes it clear that God grants repentance unto life. That it is a saving grace given by God. Well, what about faith? Isn't that man's part? Well, Ephesians 2, 8 tells us, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And so both of them are gifts. Yes, anyone who hears the gospel must believe the gospel, but they will only believe because God has worked faith in them. And so it makes it so that God is not only the chief object of praise, but the only object of praise. Because it is by grace. There will never be anything of the sinner in the gospel. The gospel will always be about God and what He has done, is doing, and will do for, to, and with sinners. Never about us. Never about man. That is to be our view of the gospel, brothers and sisters. When we, when we think about the gospel, always keeping God at the center, always keeping Him chief in our minds, never, never turning it on us. There, there is an aspect in which we do grow in the gospel and we are grown in sanctification and we contribute to a degree, to the sanctification of ourselves. But it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So He's always the driving force of it. Never us. And you see, this is to be our view of it currently. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, we read this very thing in, in Paul's writings. He says, verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, we could read the rest of the verses to get the whole point, but verse 30 should suffice. But of Him, that is of God, of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. That is to be our current response to the gospel, our current view of the gospel, that it is all of God and all the glory be to God. And then eternally, this is to be our view and will be our view. Eternally, we will say all glory to God for the gospel. You see that in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. Leading into verse 7. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace are ye, ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, Jesus in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 7, that in the ages to come, that is, the eternal ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So, in all ages, in the ages to come, in all 
all ages of the church of Christ on earth into eternity. All to show the exceeding riches of His grace to the praise of the glory of His grace. So that is this purpose announced. Paul announces it. He declares it. So that there's no misunderstanding here that the gospel is all about God. And then, see with me secondly, this purpose accomplished. This purpose accomplished. For Paul goes on to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Wherein, or according as, or according to, He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Beloved. And so we want to see His purpose accomplished. How did He do this? How, how did He make the gospel to the praise of the glory of His grace? Well, first consider here that it is accomplished according to the sovereignty of God. It is accomplished according to the sovereignty of God. For we read, wherein He hath. And it is particularly the Father that is in view. Remember, through these verses, we are particularly being drawn to consider the Father. Not excluding the Son or the Spirit. There, there's a, God is a trinity. Right? There are, there's equality in the Godhead, and yet there's an economy in the Godhead. That they each do different things. That the Father planned redemption, the Son earned redemption, and the Spirit applies redemption. It's always important to keep those distinctions in our mind because they help us to understand certain texts. And so when we come to this verse and we have the Father in view, it is not excluding the Son or the Spirit. And so... It is according to the sovereignty of God. He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Well, it's important to consider that because that points us to the fact, again, that this is entirely a work of God. It is entirely a work of God. It is God from start to finish, from before the foundation of the world to the creation of the new heavens and earth, wherein He hath made us accepted in the beloved. The reason I say before the foundation of the world to the creation of the new heavens and earth is because of verses 4 and 5, which we noted at the beginning, the bookends. Election before the foundation of the world unto adoption throughout the ages. And so it is entirely a work of God, and it is exactly according to the decree of God. Exactly according to the decree of God. Wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Do you notice how it's in past tense? He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. It's not waiting for its accomplishment. Does that throw your soul this morning? That as we look at this verse, we're being told it's done. It's completed. It is the finished work of God in a sense. Even though we await adoption, it is so sure that there is no doubt of the inheritance of the people of God. He hath made us accepted in the Beloved according as He's chosen us, according as He's predestinated us. It's important to consider here, as we think about it being according to the decree of God, the decree of God includes all things. Right? It is not limited to the gospel. But we see that God in history works all things. And we've considered this recently. 
He, he works all things in time according to the decree He made in eternity. So what He decreed in eternity takes place in time. And you see that clearly in relation to His people in Acts chapter 13. We read these words in Acts 13 verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Ordained before the foundation of the world according to the decree. I, I raise this in, in relation to this verse because we need to understand the degree to which God is sovereign. The degree to which He has decreed all things to His glory. So that not a crumb falls to the ground outside of His decree. Not a flea lives or dies outside of His decree. There's nothing that He is not in control of. And we need to always keep that firm in our hearts. Immediately, immediately the objection will be, well, well does that not make God the author of sin? And no, it does not. It does not make God the author of sin that what He decreed in eternity takes place in time. That the Scripture is very clear about. In Acts 2.23, the most heinous act of sin ever committed. And yet the responsibility is placed on man. Listen to this. Acts 2.23, Him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You think about what's included in that verse. Being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, according to His decree, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And so the Scriptures make no Make no qualms about presenting both sides of the coin. And there is no contradiction. So it is accomplished according to the sovereignty of God. There was never any doubt, never any possibility for this plan that was to the praise of the glory of His grace to fail. It was accomplished according to His sovereignty. But also, it is accomplished through Christ and with sinners. It is accomplished through Christ and with sinners. Note what Paul says. Wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Made us accepted in the beloved. We want to note here particularly because it is focusing on the Father. So it is not wrong to say God and include uh, all the members of the Trinity, which they're not, again, I say they're not excluded, but it's important for us to specifically think of the Father here, since He is highlighted. He accomplished this through Christ and with sinners. 
How do we see the grace of God in this? The Father's grace is seen firstly in how He refers to Christ. In how He refers to Christ. He calls Him the Beloved. The Beloved. The Loved One. Or Prized One. The Precious One. The Father's Perfect One. According as He said at His baptism, This is My Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, completely pleased. Nothing in Him not pleasing to God. Perfect, sinless, precious to the Father. So the Father's grace is seen in how He refers to Christ. And the Father's grace is seen in what He does to Christ for sinners. This is implied from our text wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Well, how did He do that? How did He make us sinners accepted before Him in the Beloved? Well, the Father gave. The Father gave the Son. He gave Him from eternity. You remember, as we considered a few weeks ago from Ephesians 1-4, that, that that determination, that choosing us in Him, that decision to bless us, was a decision to curse Christ. He gave Him from before the foundation of the world His beloved Son. The Father gave Him. The Father sent Him. The Father decreed that the Son would enter time, would become incarnated, would take on flesh, knowing all that was going to come with that, and all that His Son, His beloved Son, would suffer. The Father gave Him, sent Him, and sanctified Him. Him through His life. Sinlessly sanctified Him. Luke 2.52 tells us that Christ from a child that He grew in wisdom in favor with God and with men. He grew in that. He sinlessly grew all throughout His life. So Father gives sins and sanctifies Him according to His perfect timing and His perfect will. And then what does He do? What does He do with His beloved Son after He's done these things, after He has earned complete righteousness for His people, after He's completely obeyed the law of God, never sinned in thought, word, or deed? What does the Father do? The Father sacrifices His Son. He takes the spotless Lamb of God and sacrifices Him for sinners. And He raises Him from the dead. He allows His precious Son to be put in a tomb for three days. He sustains His body so that He sees no corruption. He raises Him from the dead 
And then He enthrones Him in heaven at His right hand so that He is the man of God at God's right hand. He is the God-man for sinners, enthroned for sinners. And why I take the time to say all that is because you realize that as we think about those things, the Father did it all. Were the same sinners that crucified Christ. Think of the grace of God that is seen in this, this offer of the gospel from Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? We've crucified the Lord of glory. We've crucified the Messiah. Deserve nothing but the just judgment of God upon them. And yet, what does Peter say? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What grace of God is displayed there to the very people who crucified the beloved Son of the Father. And you and I are right there. Brothers and sisters, we are right there. We may have not been there in time, but we were there as sinners. The whole world is represented in the crucifixion of Christ as we considered some weeks ago. And we're there. So the Father's grace is seen in what He does to Christ for sinners. But lastly here, the Father's grace thirdly is seen in what He does with sinners through Christ. What He does with them through Christ. This is how He's displaying His grace in the gospel. This is how he's making the grace of God preeminent in the gospel, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Made us accepted. Again, past tense. Taken sinners and made them accepted in the beloved. He does this as sinners are brought into union with Christ. He brings sinful, rebellious people into spiritual union with his Son. He regenerates them. He gives them the new birth, as John calls it. Or rather, as our Lord calls it in John 3. He brings them from death to life. He imparts to them the gift of saving faith so that they believe the gospel and are justified before God. Accepted. That word accepted includes all that is necessary to be accepted with God. So they are justified. They're brought from being legally condemned, legally guilty before God to being legally righteous before God. And then adopted. Adopted through this union with Christ. So that they not they cease, rather, they go from being mere creatures of God to being 
children of God. And they are accepted. And so it is, as sinners are brought into union with Christ, we see this grace. And as they are conformed to the image of Christ, we see this grace. That the Lord sanctifies people who used to blaspheme His name. People who used to sin against Him, whether in heart or in life. Whatever it was that we did against God, He takes us from that. From practical wickedness to practical righteousness. That He begins to make men and women holy. And conforming them to His Son. And you see the grace of God in that. You see the grace of God in changing lives. And turning people. Doing a 180. And as they are brought to be with Christ. As they are brought to be with Him. As they are brought into Him. As they are conformed to Him. And as they are brought to be with Him. As the Lord glorifies sinners. As He glorifies His people. So that in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, with glorified people, each and every person will be a marker of the grace of God. So that it will be to the praise of the glory of His grace for all eternity. As we look on each other. As you look on one another today. You're to behold the grace of God in a changed life if we know the Lord. Not necessarily a perfect life in this life, but a changed life. And why is this all showing His grace? Ultimately, because it is all of God. And not only because grace is undeserved favor. But we can never consider the grace of God merely as undeserved favor as it relates to sinners. Because not only is this all undeserved, but it is, in, it is all in contrast to what was deserved. Not only are sinners, are you and I, undeserving, we were ill-deserving. We deserved nothing but the wrath of God. We deserved nothing but eternity in hell. We were ill-deserving of God's eternal and righteous wrath. And yet, God bestows upon us His undeserved favor. Rather than what we do deserve. And as the Father calls Christ His beloved, this should make us call Him our beloved. There should not be a day that we cannot say He is my beloved. Look at the grace of God and what He has done for me. He is the Father's beloved. He should be our beloved. So brothers and sisters, as we come to the close of this text, may none of us ever lose sight of God's glory being the central purpose and focus of the gospel. It is crucial to all of life 
Let us sing to God be the glory. Great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son. As I said, this has application to all of life. If, if our chief end is to glorify God, rather, if, if God's chief end is His own glory, then it is by necessity that your life and my life be all for His glory. That that be our primary purpose, our primary focus. And so, as you think about the gospel and the glory of God in the gospel, the glory being the governing purpose of it, we always need to ask ourselves, what am I living for? What am I living for every day? Am I living for the glory of God? And we know it will never be perfect in this life, but it's a question we ask ourselves, resolving by the grace of God to pursue His glory. I'll close with the words of Revelation 5, verse 12 and 13. This multitude in heaven, and I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels, that's verse 11, round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousand of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious, loving, kind Heavenly Father, we do bow our heads and our hearts before Thee. We say thank You, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank You for making me whole. Lord, we marvel at Your grace. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to constantly be praising Thee from our hearts, with our mouths, O oh God. May our mouths be full of the praise, the praises of God, as the psalmist said. O oh Lord, we, we have nothing in ourselves that is worthy of praise. And so we gladly, O oh Lord, Behold thy grace and ask that you will help us to behold it forever and ever and ever and never lose sight of it, Lord. Help us to never become bored with it. Lord, as we so often can become dull to the beauties, the realities of the gospel, Lord, keep us, keep us growing in our capacity to adore Thee. Oh, Lord, help us. Lord, be with everyone here today. Bless this day to us. Help us to honor Thee in it. Lord, we pray for any soul here that hasn't been able to understand the things we've been talking about today in terms of their own experience. We 
pray, Lord, that you will cause every single person here to enter in to the experience of the grace of God, to the realities of what you've revealed about your grace. Lord, we pray if there is a lost soul here, move upon them. Open their eyes that they may see Him who is altogether lovely. Him whom the world would say there is no beauty in Him, that we should desire Him. Oh Lord, but You have opened our eyes to call Him beloved. Help us, Lord, to leave this place calling Him beloved. Depart us, O Lord, with Thy blessing. Attend our tables today with Thy presence and our afternoons, and bring us back in the evening to seek Thy face as we worship Thee again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.